This week, we have an interesting feat, a tie at the cutoff story and at the number 10 story. So a tie, when we have two stories with the same exact the same exact score, we let the story that got there the fastest, that's the youngest story, be the top billing. So because of that, the story that's at number 11 that we're cutting things off at, don't worry, we'll get to more of it. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry to be stripped of all remaining royal patronages as the palace braces for Oprah. And I wanted to talk about this because the palace wasn't bracing for Oprah at the palace. The palace was bracing for an Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. But that's all you get from here. From here, for more details on that, go to our website, thisistheconversation.com. Click the link for this week's podcast, the week ending February the 20th, 2021. And we have a list for every, a link for every single story that is from the top to bottom, from all the way to 190. You can see what stories were in the listings. But we do have more Megan and Harry coming, so it, it's coming. So trust me, you'll get to that. That's your spoiler alert. In the meantime, let's get ready for that and more. The stories that you said, the top 10 stories throughout the week out of 190 full stories that we posted that you said were the most conversational, most important, most interesting, the stories that people really want to talk about here on the weekly wrap-up with Jay Cleveland Payne. This is the week ending February the 20th, 2021. And welcome to the show. My name, Jay Cleveland Payne, the show weekly wrap up. The weekly wrap up is a wrap up of news stories that we have posted using the conversation project at this is a conversation.com and the social media feeds attached to it to see what stories in the news from around the world and from all different sources, all the different sources we can find. Most of them pretty credible were the most conversational. Now, if you've watched the news, like I watch it basically all day long, there have been a lot of things going on this week about cold and pandemic and cold and pandemic. But those aren't the stories that were the most conversational because everybody knew cold and pandemic. We went through and scoured through the internet and found other stories through various sources. And you got a chance to tell us by your engagement with them on social media, which stories were cool, pun intended, to talk about. And that happens by following us on Facebook or Twitter. On Facebook, you look for us at This Is A Conversation. On Twitter, it's TH underscore conversation. And what you do is, while you're doing your normal thing throughout the day, checking your feeds and having things go on, you just look and see what we have going on, what stories we have. See the headlines that we're posting and the sources are there. Read the stories so you get more in tune to what's going on. Maybe a few things you didn't see because... Snow, ice, and cold, and pandemic essentially were the important stories. So some things that didn't get put into your local news. And then you engage with them, like them, love them, hate them, share them. The more engagement you give to a story, the higher the score it gets throughout the day. You can engage them by following the eight things to talk about uh, uh, newsletter we have every single Monday through Friday. And then on Friday mornings, from we cut it off at about 5 a.m. Central Time, going from midnight the previous Friday. We take all the stories and put them in an algorithm inside of a spreadsheet. We weigh them out so there's an equal weighing between the Facebook and the Twitter. And we get one full score to go from top to bottom. Top, the number one story. We'll get to that in moments. The bottom story this week is number 190. We call that the almost relevant story of the week. We give it that because most of the time it's a story that was posted late in the whole shebang of things. Didn't get a lot of time to actually gather traction. This one was posted early in the shebang on Friday. That's your spoiler on that one. We'll tell you about that one at the end of the show. To be a part of the show, you literally just follow us on social media respond to the stories or email us at the conversation inbox at gmail.com. We can talk about any single story or anything else that we may not be covering. You think we should do this podcast powered by you. So check out 
This is the conversation.com slash partnerships. Find a way you may want to partner with us or just click any link we have in any of our products, that being the newsletter, the website, and inside the feeds. Those are affiliate links that allow us to get a little bit off of what's going on. We thank you so much and appreciate all you can do for us for those as well. Right now, let's get to the real deal and conversational news stories that we had for this week. At number 10, this story, of course, tied in score, so there's no bump in response from the actual cutoff. It literally is the same exact score, uh, but just slightly above the score below that at 12. So let's say bump a response of 4.95 from the previous story there. We have the story at number 10. The headline reads, Portland police guard dumpster face off with residents trying to get discarded food from Fred Myers. On Wednesday the 17th is the day we posted this one. The source for this was OregonLive.com. This is an interesting story, so bear with me while I read you what we posted from the newsletter we have every single weekday, eight things to talk about, on Thursday for the wrap-up of this one. Roughly a dozen Portland police officers faced off with a small group of Northeast Portland Fred Myers on Tuesday after people tried to take food that had been thrown away. Workers at the Hollywood West Fred Meyer threw away thousands of perishable items because the store, like many others, had lost power in an outage brought on by the region's winter storm. Images on social media showed mountains of prepackaged meat, cheese, and juice, as well as whole turkeys and racks of ribs that had been tossed into a large dumpster near the store. A few people gathered about 2.30 p.m. at the store, 3030 Northeast Wheeler Street, in hopes of salvaging the food, but within a few hours, people seeking food from dumpsters began to report police officers showing up to guard the dumpsters and prevent people from taking the items. Morgan McKiff, a prominent activist and outspoken Portland police critic who lives in the neighborhood, says employees were guarding the dumpsters when they showed up to get some of the discarded food. McKiff began to film the employees and reported staff members as threatening to call the police on them for doing so. The store manager called the police shortly thereafter, McKiff said, and McKiff began live-streaming the interaction on Instagram. On Wednesday, Portland police said officers were sent to the scene after employees said, quote, they felt the situation was escalating and feared there may be physical confrontation, a police spokesperson said in the statement. Also, on Wednesday, a Fred Meyer spokesperson responded in what had become a deluge of criticism knowing the company donates more than 5 million pounds of food annually. This is a situation that's unique to what happened this week with all of the ice and snow and power outages because of the massive demand for power in the situation. And as in many stores, if you could get to one these, these days, one, they ran out of things pretty quickly, and two, with lack of power and lack of people buying stuff, the perishables perished. And so what you have to do, they basically had to throw them away and take them as a loss. There was, I'm sure if there was an organized way to get food out, like food pantries, food banks that could have got to it, they would have done something like that with most of it. But in most cases, the only thing you can do is throw it away. People in the social media world now can see these things, and it turned into a big mess and a big public relations nightmare that Fred Meyer will have to deal with once the power and the snow are all dealt with across the nation. Moving on, the story we have at number nine. UFC football names Gus Malzahn as head coach Tuesday, the 16th of February. Posted this one. This gets a bumper response from the story at 10 of 3.77%. That means more people responded to the story throughout the week 
by that amount of percentages. And this is one that I'm going to read because this is this is one that I would think is something that's really meaningful to us here, here being where I live in Arkansas, because that's where Gus Malzahn started, or SEC football fans in general, because that's what they do. But apparently enough of you guys care about either SEC or Gus Malzahn or just the weirdness of coaching that it was a big deal. Let me read to you what this ESPN.com put out and we put into our newsletter this week. UFC, which is, of course, University of, Southern, University of Central Florida, hired former Auburn football coach Gus Malzahn Monday, signing him to a five-year, $11.5 million contract and banking on the offensive background and name recognition he brings with them. Athletic director Terry Mohajer described Malzahn as a natu- national brand coach whose arrival will only help UFC continue to emerge as a football school trying to break its way into the establishment. Mahajir, who recently who was recently hired at UFC, said one of the first calls he made after getting the job was to see whether Malzahn had any interest in coaching again. Malzahn emerged as UFC's leading candidate on Sunday and replaces both Josh Heppert, who left last month for the Tennessee head coaching job. Malzahn, 55, was hired on December 13th after eight seasons at Auburn. He was 68-35 and overall, 39-29 in SEC play. Malzahn took the Tigers to a national championship game in his first season in 2013. They won 10 games and made an SEC championship game appearance in 2017, but he went just 14-12 and 12 against SEC opponents over the next three seasons. During his introduction news conference, Malzahn said he had no plans to coach in 2021, but when the UFC job came open, he immediately became interested, not only because of the program's position among the group of five, but because of his emphasis on tempo offense. In addition, he and Mohajer worked together briefly at Arkansas State in 2012 before Malzahn left for the Auburn job. Malzahn said of the call he made to uh, Mahajer said the call he made to Malzahn to gauge his interest in UFC. I could feel the fire through the phone. Now, this is a story that I actually covered personally as a sports reporter here in Arkansas when this went down. A quick bit of backstory Malzahn. Gus Malzahn was a high school coach and he had the top he had just won a high school championship and he had five of the top recruits that were going to the University of Arkansas, the big school here in the state. And one of the side deals that sort of went along with it was Coach Malzahn would come in and join the coaching staff. And because of the high profile nature of the five recruits and the new coach There was a lot going on between him, the coaching staff, and the head coach at the time, um, Houston Nutt, who was a big-time deal at the time, but may have got this got a kind of hand as he was sort of pushed to bring Malzahn in. They called Malzahn High School. They kind of joked around a bit. He didn't stick around very long. He changed some offensive things that did add tempo to the offense, uh, but um, the head coach took, took the credit for it. And what really happened that was really kind of a shame was of the five big time recruits that started at the school, only one actually finished. And he finished kind of um, on the back end. He didn't go anywhere from there. And a very, very high profile quarterback ended up transferring to two different schools for getting out of high school, out of football together and just sort of being a, a bum. So Gus Malzahn has a very Greek tragic like story background to him, including his jump to other schools and then his jump to Auburn, his jump away from Auburn. Now trying to make UCF, I may say UFC, UCF, Southern or Central Florida, say that three times fast, make that school into a powerhouse as they play pretty good football, but but because they don't play in something like the SEC or the ACC, they don't get a lot of love. We'll see if the Gus bus parking in Central Florida 
will bring the love to them for more football games. Moving on, going to story at number eight. Naomi Osaka saves a butterfly that landed on her nose and refuses to leave during her tennis match. Friday, the 12th of February, we posted this one with a bumper response of 9.09%. This is a very cute story, and I'm not going to read the story because it's just all so cutesy. But the basic part of the story is that uh, Osaka was playing a match, and this butterfly just landed on a racket. Literally, landed on a racket and just stood there. So she took the time to carefully take the butterfly off the racket put it to the side, kind of coo and caught it for a little bit, and this gained a lot of big national attention from the pictures. And this was a very early story. It happened uh, on the on Friday or Thursday and the Friday uh, while she was doing some warm-ups for the, for the Australian Open. And this is one that shot up real quick and, of course, stayed so long. Now, the big story for Osaka this week is actually the fact that she beat uh, Serena Williams at the Australian Opens, and now Serena Williams sort of has some question marks on how much longer she's going to play. She is almost 40 in tennis players don't play at top level at almost 40. In fact, most athletes don't play at top level at almost 40. Tom Brady, our GOAT in football, didn't play necessarily at top level, but he played some of his best football this season at 42. So so that's no reason why she can't keep competing. The question is, can she keep winning at a dominant pace and win consistently? We're seeing that issue from from her sister, uh, Serena, who has backed away, who was a little younger, and, and people say wasn't quite as talented. But Serena has to kind of deal her thing, or, or Venus has to do her things right now as well. Here's the, the deal. The story that we picked, or you guys picked, was about um, Osaka, and that is cool. And you picked that one about the butterfly, and that is cool. And we mentioned that. I want to make sure that's out there. But the bigger deal that we'll see is the fact that this big-time tennis player is going places. I had to throw in a Serena thing because I just had to. It was a, it was sort of a bigger mainstream media story. So if you disagree with me doing that, let me know. Email me at theconversationinbox at gmail.com. And as we said, we can talk about anything uh, about this thing, things we did post, things we didn't post, things we should have posted, things we should not have posted, or complaints about anything else in general that you say I may have missed or overdone, including throwing in the Serena story when it really was about Osaka and the butterfly. Moving now to the story at number seven. This story uh, was a pretty hot one pretty quick as well. And this is one that you guys uh, wanted to know more about. On Sunday, the 14th, we posted this story with a bumper response from the eight story. Just slight, 0.83%. Headline reads, Nicki Minaj's father, Robert Minaj, killed in hit-and-run accident. The source is for TMZ. So we're going to read you what we put out from them in our newsletter this week. Nicki Minaj's father... Robbie Minaj has died after being struck in a hit-and-run accident, TMZ has learned. Nassau County Police in New York say he was walking on the road between Roslyn Road and Ralph Avenue Friday evening around 6 p.m. Eastern Time when he was hit by a vehicle heading northbound. Cops say the driver fled the scene without a meaningful description from witnesses. Robert was taken to an area hospital in critical condition where he succumbed to his injuries and passed over the weekend. The Homicide Squad is investigating the case and asking for the public's health in identifying the responsible party. There was no decent description of the suspect's vehicle provided. Nikki hasn't spoken on her dad's death yet. There are shots of them together embracing over the years, so they obviously have had a decent relationship and saw each other from time to time. It's unclear how Nikki's relationship with her dad was currently. A rep for Nikki confirmed her dad's death, but did not have further comment at this time. Robert was 64 years old. 
We're going to move on from that serious death story to another serious illness story. This story posted at number six, and this headline reads, Britain's Prince Philip, 99, in hospital after feeling over unwell, I should say. Wednesday, the 17th of February, we posted this one, a bump in response from the previous story of 23.14%. Reading from the story that we pulled from Reuters, here is what they posted, and we posted on the newsletter. Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth's 99-year-old husband, was admitted to the hospital on Thursday as a precautionary measure after feeling ill with an, an ailment that is not related to COVID-19. The prince, whose official title is Duke of Edinburgh, walked unaided into the private King Edward's VIII Hospital in London while after feeling unwell for a short period, a royal source said. The queen, 94, remains at Windsor Castle near London, where the pair have been staying during Britain's COVID-19 pandemic. Both received their first dose of COVID-19 vaccine in January. A royal source said Philip did not have a COVID-19-related illness and that it was not an emergency. Within an hour of his arrival, camera crews and photographers from Britain, Australia, France, and Germany had gathered outside the hospital where policemen stood guard. A former Navy officer renowned for his sometimes brusque manner and humor Philip married Elizabeth in 1947, five years before she became queen. He is now by far the longest-serving consort of any British monarch. The couple's marriage, that earlier-than-expected inheritance of the British throne and family life with four children, has been charted in recent years by the Netflix drama The Crown. Philip is now rarely seen in public. He stepped down from official engagements in August 2017 after completing more than 22,000 solo events and thousands more alongside the Queen. The source of that who said is Reuters, we are definitely have thoughts and prayers out for Prince Philip. The old guy is definitely doing what he can. As we said in the report, and we know from just being royal watchers, we sort of are, I guess. Uh, Prince Philip has not been seen doing a lot of events because of age. And just, just at, at some point, you just kind of have to not stop doing it. In fact, most of his official duties have been taken over by Prince Charles, who's not a spring chicken himself, but also not 99 years old. We will see how this one progresses. And as we said in the spoiler alert, we do have more royal news or current royal news. That's an interesting thing to say right there. Moving on to the story at number five. From People Magazine, your headline reads, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry announced they are expecting baby number two. Archie will be a big brother! Exclamation point. That story, as we said, we pulled from People Magazine, and it had a bumper response of... 15.44% from the previous story. This one posted earlier, though, so it was there a lot longer. Sunday, the 14th, is when it was posted. Let's tell you about the news here. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are expecting their second child together, the couple announced on Sunday. The baby will be the younger sibling of the couple's son, Archie Harrison, who will turn two on May 6. Quote, we can confirm that Archie is going to be a big brother. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are overjoyed to be expecting their second child, a spokesperson for the couple told People. Meghan and Harry announced their pregnancy news with a stunning black and white photo that was taken remotely via iPad by their friend and longtime photographer, Misan Harriman. A smiling and barefoot Harry looks lovingly at Meghan, who cradles her baby bump as she rests in his lap. The happy news which they shared on Valentine's Day, comes after Megan, 39, revealed she had suffered a miscarriage last July. Quote, Losing a child means carrying an almost unbearable grief, experienced by many but talked about by few, she wrote in a searingly honest and all-heartbreaking New York Times essay on November 25th. 
Meghan and Harry, 36, officially stepped down from their roles as senior royals last year. Their desire to have a normal family life played a role in their groundbreaking decision. A palace source previously told people that for the time, at the, by the time of Archie's birth, they knew they were going to hit the nuclear button on their royal exit. Now, next week, we'll probably talk more about Harry and Meghan because uh, this week they were officially cut off from their basically all their royal duties. We're not going to talk about that right now because it's in this week's news or this weekend's news. We'll see how that turns about to going forward. But uh, anytime we drop a Harry and Meghan, they pop in there. In fact, they found a way to pop in twice, even though one technically had nothing to do with the other and it was still tied at the cutoff story. You guys love some some Meghan and Harry, or maybe it's just loving following the, the American royal princess, who technically is not a royal princess anymore. But if we talk more about them next week, it'll be on you guys. So go back and look through the listings, see what stories we have on Meghan and Harry. And if you want that story to be something we're talking about, make sure you give it plenty of responses, plenty of engagement. You can go back in a few days because we go the whole length of time, how things pick up. Some stories take a while to pick up and, and we get to them there. Some stories just shoot off like a rocket immediately. We never know until we get to the countdown. So right now, you know that we always know that you love Megan and Harry stories. We'll see how much you love about that one because there's some already in the works for this week. You just have to make it happen to put it in the countdown. Keeping it going, moving the story at number four. Headline reads, New York Times reporter Catherine Krieg dies suddenly at 47. Saturday, the 13th, is the day we posted this one, 13th of February, if you will. And this is the top-rated Facebook story of the week. Facebook pushed this one to its position. It would have been a little, it would have been here. This gave it just a little bit extra kick, even though it does have a bump in response of 27.33% from the story at number five. We'll talk more about the Facebook love and stories in a bit, but first, here's what we posted from the New York Post. And in our newsletter this week, veteran New York NBC news reporter Catherine Krieg died suddenly Wednesday night. The network announced Thursday she was 47. Krieg, who joined WNBC in 2011, was among the familiar faces in the morning on Today in New York, had not been ill and was working as recently as Wednesday morning. The network called her death unexpected, but did not disclose any details on her cause of death. The Emmy-winning journalist was remembered for her love of Filipino food, her boundless energy, and her vivacious smile. Krieg reported for Today in New York, which airs at 4.30 a.m. until 7 a.m. and appeared on air again at 11 a.m. She wrote in her Twitter bio, Sleep? What's that? I go to work when there's coming home from the club. Krieg graduated from New York University in 1996 and spent five years at Fox before signing on with NBC. She has won or shared a winning multiple enemies Associated Press and Edward R. Murrow Awards during her career. Apologies for mumbling the last part of the story, and definitely our thoughts and prayers are going out to her family and her TV family and colleagues from there. Uh, as we noted in the story, no cause of death had been reported when we posted this, and nothing's been set up as, a, as any sort of update since this, so I'm sure at some point in time there will be a greater story on this one especially in the, in the area there if this is something that you cover or something you you listen to because you're in that area please send us an email via our our email address the conversation inbox at gmail.com let us know how the story is progressing because we'd love to know how it's going let's move to the story at number three with the headline powerful earthquake hits japan near fukushima 
Saturday the 13th, we also posted this one on that day as well. Bump in response from the story at number four is 55.25%. From the story that we posted listed inside of the newsletter from this week, the source was CNN.com. A powerful earthquake that hit Japan on Saturday was an aftershock of the devastating 9.0 magnitude quake that struck the same area almost 10 years ago, according to National Meteorology Agency. The 7.1 magnitude earthquake that struck the county's coast at 11.07 p.m. Saturday. At least 48 injuries were reported in Fukushima and Miyagi prefaces, according to state broadcaster NHK, but there were no major casualties. The epicenter hit about 46 miles, 76 kilometers, northeast of Nami, a coastal town of 60 miles from Fukushima, according to the United States Geological Survey. The earthquake measured about 36 miles in depth. No tsunami warnings was issued Saturday. Saturday's quake took place around the same area in the March 11, 2011 earthquake that caused the country's worst nuclear disaster on record when three reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant melted down releasing radioactive materials into the air. More than 20,000 people died or went missing in 2011's quake and tsunami, while hundreds of thousands more had their homes lost. More than 100,000 people were evacuated from the area. Authorities have spent the past 10 years cleaning up the area, a massive effort for, experts say, another few decades to complete. Now, that's the real devastating part of the story. This was an aftershock of a of a of a her of a of a earthquake from ten years ago. It took ten years for an aftershock from this thing to hit, and that was a nine point oh ten years ago. The aftershock was a seven point one, uh, pretty devastating on its own. Not quite nine, but pretty pretty heavy. And of course, the area mostly mostly evacuated still since uh, because the fear of nuclear radiation from the meltdown of the reactors there in the area. We definitely are keeping our thoughts and prayers on a lot of folks this week, including people in that area, making sure that everything is still safe from that quake. As like the story says, a few more decades may be needed to actually get the whole place cleaned up. Our story at number two this week, police involved investigating death of former Bucks chargers receiver, Vincent Jackson Tuesday, the 16th of February's day. We posted this one. A bump in response to this of 29.71% from the story at number three. Here's a write-up that we received from sports.yahoo.com that we put out in the newsletter this week. Police in Florida are investigating the death of former San Diego Chargers and Tampa Bay Buccaneer wide receiver Vincent Jackson. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office announced on Monday that Jackson was found dead in a hotel room in Brandon, a suburb of Tampa. He was 38 years old. The news confirms reports that several local media outlets said that Jackson had died. According to HCSO, Jackson had been living in the Homewood Suites Hotel since January 11th. His family called to report him missing on February 10th. Police located him live at the hotel and spoke to him on Friday. A housekeeper found him dead in his hotel room at 11.30 a.m. Monday. A cause of death has not been determined. There were no immediate signs of trauma, according to police. Jackson, a three-time pro bowler, played 12 seasons in the NFL from 2005 to 2016. He recorded 6,000-yard 6, 6, receiving campaigns and tallied 540 catches for 9,080 yards over 57 touchdowns over the course of his career. He played his first seven seasons as a featured member of the high-powered Buccaneers and retired in Tampa where he remained an active member of the community and philanthropist and business owner. He opened three of seven restaurants that he co-owned in Tampa. 
course, thoughts and prayers going out to this family, the family, his family, and his friends and all the people he worked with, and the community who loved him as well. This is a story that's going to go a little bit deeper as we figure out what the deal was. As the story says, he just went missing from the family. He just stopped reporting in with the family, and then he was found at the hotel last week and then found dead earlier in the week. This is uh, these stories. Once we find more details to go into it, we can go and kind of go deeper into the details themselves. Uh, it's hard to really try to go into these type of things without knowing the full details, but we definitely are sending out our thoughts and prayers to the family for Vincent Jackson and all those in the community who loved him as well and worked with him as he was a big part of the Tampa community. Now the story at number one, we also, we always give it lots of fanfare, a lot of juice because it deserves it. We tell you in these, in these podcasts that Twitter rules the world in the numbers and it is no exception for this one. This story is a top Twitter story and this story gets a bumper response from the number two story we just had of, get this, 1,112%. That's just from two to one. From 2 to 10, the story on the Portland police guarding the dumpster to keep people from getting the food out of it, that story's bump in response is 4,944%, almost 5,000%. This week, uh, this may, this is not the largest jump we've ever had, but it's a pretty close one. The jump from number 1 to number 190, which is 106,840. And there's nothing really out of the ordinary for the story at the very bottom but the story at the very top the large response came from a outnormous ginormous twitter response for this story uh and all the responses that went back and forth on twitter were so amazing this because there were so many other things to talk about and honestly because people are trying not to talk about this guy this was a big deal even though it shouldn't have been a big deal but he likes to make himself a big deal so so if anything, hopefully someone will tell him about this podcast, let him know that he was the top story this week, which would make him happy. I'm not sure the actual results of the, the actual meaning for the story would make him happy, but who knows? For him, good publicity, any publicity, publicity is good. So let's get you the real details, real stats for this story. Oh, by the way, 44.92% of all engagement for this week happened with this story. That's how many people were into this one. It was posted on Tuesday, the 16th. It reads, Trump took model of redesigned Air Force One from White House and has it on a coffee table at Mar-a-Lago. That's it. That's the thing that everybody's chatting about. We pulled this story from the Daily Mail, dailymail.co.uk, and here's a bit of their write-up of the issue. President Donald Trump was so enthusiastic about his planned Air Force One redesign and its new paint job that he placed a scale model inside the Oval Office, and he took it with him to his Mar-a-Lago club where it, he left when he left the White House. Trump made much fanfare of his actions to renegotiate the redesign of the new generation aircraft, threatening to cancel a contract with Boeing after he took office in negotiating changes. He said his efforts saved taxpayers money. He also took a stylish interest involving himself in the paint job and scrapping design elements that date to the Kennedy administration. He put a model of the redesigned plane inside the Oval Office where it appeared in countless photographs of Trump with world leaders and becoming a conversation piece. Now the model can be seen at Mar-a-Lago where Trump has been living since January the 20th. 
The White House brushed off questions at the start of Joe Biden's tenure about whether he would ditch the new paint job featured on Trump's model. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Biden, quote, had not spent a moment, unquote, thinking about the color scheme for the aircraft, which is considered a symbol of U.S. power and prestige around the world. That's the aircraft, not the color. The spokeswoman for Trump's post-presidency office didn't immediately respond to a request for information about whether Trump had been required to reimburse the government for the model, as presidents routinely do for diplomatic gifts they wish to maintain in their possession. Because technically that gift would be the the model color or the model it would be a gift from boeing to display for people to see and will cost some money and trump's known for not paying people back pretty much often so how do you give commentary to a story like this one i'm not exactly sure why it gained so much interest although i would suspect it's because it's Trump doing silly Trump stuff. And it's one that did not get a lot of mainstream media attention. Although the, the Daily Mail, which is partly tabloid, uh, did a lot of job work going there. And Politico, as we said, got information that, yes, it was there. So so this is a story that did not get much run in mainstream because there was people dying in, in freezing temperatures in Texas uh, this week. So that was obviously much more important. Uh, but this is one that... Because people aren't going to really let go of Trump, even though people uh, say we want to, is going to be the real reality that he is a looming figure that's going to be around with us forever. He's going to be in the history books. He is the 45th president. He will be noted for things he did, things he didn't do, things he did really, really badly, and some things that he may have done pretty good at, and then shot himself in the foot by trying to over-explain and take too much credit for the plane, one thing he overexplained and took too much credit for. And right now, we'll see whether of all the, his actual legal troubles, whether somebody really cares to prosecute him stealing the model from the White House in the Oval Office. The answer to that question is, it's not that important. Nobody, literally nobody cares. But it turned into one little small piece of conversation, or a big piece of conversation for Mar-a-Lago visitors, I guess, but a small piece of conversation to make it interesting for you guys, and so much massive, crazy response in this week that it's just, um, it is what it is. You guys don't want to give up on Donald Trump, and these are the people who want to make fun at Donald Trump, not so much people who want him to come back as president. Now, if this was something about him coming back as president, I'm pretty sure it would not have gotten the run, because to be honest, we don't. We don't garner those types of audiences, to be honest, but maybe we should. Maybe we should try harder. We will see. But what we did see were the sheer, just outrageous numbers from this thing. As I said earlier, 44.92%, 45% of all engagement this week was on this story. More than almost half the engagement for everything we had going out throughout the, throughout the week was on this story. When you portion up the top 10, where we normally have something like 35% is where the top 10 stories are, that large number meant that almost 60% of all engagement happened in the stories we covered just now, 59.86%. We go down to the what we call the almost rands. Those are the stories that are 11 through 16 that are not quite in range. With the cutoff story to basically the one that gets the most love here in the podcast. You can, of course, read about every single story by going to the website. And that range, more or less normal, 14.11%. However, the very thrown-off top number changed that from what probably would have been about the normal 6 to 7%. At the very bottom, as we said, the bottom story was not all that out of the ordinary. The bottom story usually gets about 0.03% of an engagement. 
And this week, 0.04% engagement is where it is. So that's more or less along the lines of things. Now, this was a massive Twitter week. Uh, Twitter usually covers about 90% of the coverage. 93.87% versus 6.13% on the Facebook side. We always love more Facebook love. This week, that top story and all the responses on Twitter basically had no chance of surviving. So even though we had a pretty good week for Facebook responses, that number one story was just so outrageously large on Twitter responses, it just had no chance of doing much of anything. But for those of you who have waited patiently, the story at the very bottom, story 190 this week, like we said, was posted on Friday the 12th of February, so early on in the weeking, and it just didn't gather much attention, which is odd, maybe because of the time of day it was, around 7 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning. But it get a bump of response or it's below response is of course 106,840% less than the top story. Although this is a good guy doing good things even after he's gone. Headline, Alex Trebek wardrobe donated to homeless organization for job interviews. A bit the story from Deadline. 14 suits, 58 dress shirts, 300 neckties and various other items of clothing that once belonged to Jeopardy's host Alex Trebek have been donated by the show and Trebek family to the Doe Fund, an organization that provides paid work, housing, vocational training, continuous education, and comprehensive social services to underserved Americans with histories of addiction, homelessness, and incarceration. At the suggestion of Trebek's son, Matthew Trebek, a supporter of the Doe Fund, the clothing will be distributed to those participating in organizations' ready, willing, and able reentry program to be worn on job interviews. During his last days on set, Alex extolled the virtues of everyone opening up their hands and their hearts to those who are suffering, said Mike Richards, executive producer of Jeopardy. Donating his wardrobe to those who are working to rebuild their lives is a perfect way to begin to honor his last request. And this is the the really cool thing. I gave you a couple of numbers of things going on. This is the full inventory that was given to the, the organization when they all summed it up. 58 dress shirts, 14 suits, 300 neckties, 25 polo shirts, 14 sweaters, 9 sports coats, 9 pairs of dress shoes, 15 belts, 2 parkas, and three pairs of dress socks. This is a story that's a good story, and this is a story that's good to end on. So I'm glad, especially with the weirdness of the number one story for this week, this is where we're at. Even though it did not get very much response throughout the week, I guess it's just sort of apropos because that means we get a chance to talk about it as we wrap up for the week here on stories. Now, the stories are already flying, already being posted inside the social media feeds for the Conversation Project. So to make sure that the story that you really, really want to hear about gets into the top 10, follow us on Facebook. Look for This is a Conversation. Our logo is a blue-looking speech bubble thing. Make sure you set us as a default in your feed so that we can be seen and fight through all the things that Zuckerberg's not letting people see these days. On Twitter, it's a little easier. Follow TH underscore conversation and just keep looking it out for us because the more you look at us, the more things you'll see. And we post some pretty interesting stories. Uh, some of them breaking if we get them in in time. Some take a little while to get in there. And some stories that we found, we may post something that's early on and it doesn't actually grow until well after it's out of our window. So sometimes we miss the big stories because we saw them early and we're just going to brag on that one as well. The conversation is powered by you. So to help keep things powered, Visit thisistheconversation.com slash partnerships. 
click on the links to see there's a way that you may want to partner with us. If you think we're giving you valuable stuff, valuable content, you can help us then keep things going. Or just click on any link you see that's an ad inside of our newsletter, on our website, inside of our feed. Those are affiliate links that allow us to get a little bit of change off of your purchases, and it adds nothing to your purchases guaranteed you can comment to us at the conversation inbox at gmail.com pretty much anything you want to uh, just send us an email we'll talk about it we'll chat it up and the most important thing you do with us is make sure you're sharing the podcast and the feeds with other people who are into great news stories and into great conversations the more people you share it with the more conversation lists we have in the mix to have better conversations so make sure you share us we're pretty much anywhere you can find the podcast or find a podcast we are there if you don't find us at your favorite podcatcher let us know we know there's been some acquisitions where people pay attention to those things and people being gobbled up and moving around so let us know we'll let you know how to find us directly and the really really important thing is since you're here today be here next week we're gonna record another episode and like we said always gathering new stories we'll see what stories from the weekend are going to survive all the way through next friday and what stories throughout the week will make it into the top 10 the stories we will tell you about that were the most conversational that you said they were not anybody else out there so until next week keep on paying attention keep on having those conversations we'll be back to talk about the stories that you said were worth talking about